This morning's reading is from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 30. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, do not only in the presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will you to act out and fulfill your good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son and his father, he, was, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you, Edaphrites, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me my sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour, people like him. 
Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Thanks be to God for his words. Thanks, Marina. It was a longer reading today. It's interesting that um, we've moved our house to the center of Motherwell, and yet one of the things that lockdown's done, as I've wandered around just around this area, is I'm aware of the growth, the changing of the seasons, the fullness of the things we've been able to plant in the garden, things that we might not have noticed if the usual busy world had been going on around us. And the trees are absolutely gorgeous at the moment, although the leaves are beginning to fall off. Fantastic pictures just of all that is around us. Growth and change. If you look at the crosses, though, you'll notice something else. One of the crosses has a verse that is all to do with growth on it from Philippians 1, verse 6, where we started off as we looked in Philippians. And I don't know if that was deliberate because we were on Philippians or not, but it really picks up a key verse of this whole book. Those words, I'm sure that God who began the good work in you will keep on working in you until the day of Christ Jesus. That idea of God working in you. God sent his son into the world, not just to save us that we would have eternal life, but also to transform us, that we would be the way that he wanted us to be. That's the work that he's carrying out. And if we skip across to verse 15 of the passage that we've looked at just now, it says this, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. There's a vision of what we're called to be. You want to know the key to telling this world that we have something to share. It is that in a crooked generation, we would begin to shine like stars as we live differently. The heart of this is that beginning of the reading that Marina read for us, the picture of Jesus. Come on to that in a minute. The picture of Jesus. Jesus, who comes from his Father, who humbles himself, who obeys his Father, who dies on the cross, who is raised up that every knee may bow and worship him. He comes in order that we might be saved, but also that we might be transformed and that we might become like him. That's the word that God is doing. And last week we looked at his humility and how that should change the way that we live, not living with ourselves in the center, but other people in the center of it. And today I want to look at a second word, at his obedience. Obedience. I wonder what that word does for you. You know what you do if you're a parent, you know all about obedience, don't you? Or not? You tell a child what to do and what do they say? No. Or they say, why should I? Or they say, I don't want to. 
Why do they do that? Because children are rebellious, and even when what you're telling them to do is good and for their own good, the gut reaction of most children a lot of the time is just to say no. But here's the fact. We are all rebellious. We don't like being told what to do, do we? We bristle as someone tells us what we have to do. It doesn't matter whether it's the government, whether it's the, your parents, whether it's someone in the front of the church telling you how you will use the, the facilities, or it's your employer. We naturally bristle. Our actual reaction is to rebel, or to use a good old Scots word, we're thrown. We're thrown. There was a song that hit the charts a few years ago. It was in the charts for 75 weeks. It's the only song that has ever been in the charts for 75 years, for 75 weeks rather, and it was Frank Sinatra with I Do It My Way. The rebellious spirit in song there, in fact, Frank Sinatra's My Way might well be the theology of our generation independence. I will do it my way. Or if you're a bit more cultured than Frank Sinatra, there's a poet called William Ernst Henley who wrote a song, who wrote a poem called Invictus, and it ends with famous words which say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the whole point of that poem is, I'm not going to have any God tell me what to do. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. We are naturally rebels, rebels, Something deep within us says, I'm going to decide for myself. I'm going to choose for myself. I will consider what's best for me. I know best what's best for me, and I won't be pushed around. There is nobody out there who is smarter, wiser, or better about knowing what's right for me than I am. Now, we don't quite say that, but that's what we mean. Look at what Paul says here. After he's given us this picture of Jesus, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed. Now, instinctively, when you read that, perhaps you immediately say, who does this man think he is? Obeyed. Bossing us around like this. And if these Philippians just obeyed him and didn't question him and did what he told them, what fools they must be. You shouldn't be doing that. Now, of course, there are lots of reasons when human beings give you instructions why they might not be worth doing. They can be evil instructions. We get bad bosses. We get evil governments. We get bad parents. All these things are true. It is not always good to obey in that sense. But the problem is, even when the parent is giving us a loving instruction, even when the health and safety instructions are for our good, there is still something deep within itself, ourselves that says obedience of itself is a bad thing. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. Obedience diminishes me. It makes me less than an independent person. Am I wrong? Not for me. I wonder in these days that governments are going to struggle with this in the months that come. I think they're already beginning to struggle with it. We can argue about whether the rules are right or wrong. I'm not getting into the public health side of it at all just now. But even if the government gets it right, there's still going to be something deep within all of us that simply doesn't want to conform. That simply says, I'm not doing that unless I want to. Unless I'm convinced it's right. Unless I've decided that that's what's going to keep me safe. This nature that is within us to be rebels is actually right there in the pages of the Bible. 
doesn't it? Starts in the Garden of Eden. A God who gives men and women a perfect world and puts them in it with complete freedom. And all he gives them is one commandment. Don't eat that. All these things that they can do, all these choices, all these trees, all this beauty, all this world to explore, just don't do that. What's the one thing they do? (laughs) Eat that. God doesn't really know best. I'll decide. And of course it goes on like that because then God takes a people. And he's good to them as well. He sets them free from slavery in Egypt. He provides everything they need as they wander through the desert. He gives them a new land, a land of milk and honey. And he gives them a set of instructions that are all about their good. And what's the one thing that they keep doing? We read it right through the Old Testament as they say, we're not doing that. We've got other ideas. Rebels, rebels, time and time again. Even if there is a perfect, loving ruler with a really good rule, we want to rebel. Therefore, my dear friend, says Paul, as you have always obeyed, but notice this. I don't know if you've heard this before. There's a therefore. And it's a cliche that I was always told when I was reading the Bible, maybe you've heard it before, when there's a therefore, always ask what it's there for. Why is there a therefore? Well, because this command to obey comes right after the story of Jesus humbling himself and being raised up. And that begins to change everything because that story of Jesus tells us that Jesus was God and he became a human being and he didn't demand his own rights, but he humbled himself and he was obedient even to dying on a cross And that picture of Jesus, obedient even to dying on a cross, of course, takes us into a garden, doesn't it? Not the Garden of Eden where men and women did their own thing, but the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed that prayer. Not my will, but your will. And decided to be obedient to his Father. And that's part one of this hymn that we have to Jesus in this this passage. That Jesus humbled himself and he obeyed. He gave himself for us. But part two, if you look at this hymn in your Bibles, is that therefore God raised him up and God gave him the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow at him. What it's really saying is this, is God put him in charge of everything because of what he did. God decreed that everyone should obey him. God made him the boss of everything, the perfect boss And so what this is saying to us is therefore obey because we have the perfect boss who gave himself for us. And that changes everything. Paul, in this passage, rather long passage later on, talks about two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are with Paul at the time. Timothy's been with him the whole way through. Epaphroditus has come from the Philippians with the message and with help and with money. And Paul is going to send both of them back to Philippi. And and as he begins to speak of them, he says of Timothy, first of all, this man has a genuine concern for you. This man doesn't look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. He's like a son to me. And then he goes on as he talks about Epaphroditus. He says even more about Epaphroditus. He says, this guy came from you. You sent him to help me on the way he took ill. He nearly died, 
but he kept going because he wanted to do this work for you and for me. And, and since he's got here, he's shown nothing but concern that you are worried about him and you might think he's not okay. And so he's desperate to come back to you so that you're not anxious. Why is Paul saying all of this? Why is he taking these two men and effectively what he's saying to the Philippians, these guys really love you. They really care about you. They really give their all for you. The reason he's doing that is because he's going to send them there. And if we read later on in the New Testament, we find that Timothy particularly is is acting as a church leader. He's giving out instructions. He's ordering the church. He's giving commands. And in fact, Timothy's very young and lots of people are looking down their noses at him. But what Paul is really saying to them is, here are two people who you can obey, who you can look up to, who you can take as leaders because of their love for you. And that's the story of Jesus, isn't it? Everybody will obey Jesus. Everybody should obey Jesus because Jesus has shown the perfect self-sacrificial love for them. We should desire leaders, bosses, elders in the church, in the government, in our workplaces who are good, who we can obey and follow because we know they have our perfect interests at heart. Now, that's an ideal. (laughs) That's maybe not what your boss is like, but that is really God's model, that leadership should be servanthood, and therefore it can be followed. And therefore we can learn to be obedient people to others because we're actually not always the smartest, wisest, godliest people in the universe. But Jesus gave himself for us. So he above all has earned the right to have everyone for him and everyone call him Lord. So that's about obedience, but what is the command to obey? And we can see it here in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you and will act to fulfill his good purpose. This verse, in in one way, picks up on verse 6 of chapter 1 that we looked at where it said, he who began a good work in you will continue it. It's saying this, work out your salvation. Notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say do lots of good things and, and, and God will let you into heaven or any of that stuff. Jesus has done that. You can't work for your salvation. That's the whole point of his obedience, his humility, his giving himself in Gethsemane, him going to the cross, is that he did all that for you. He, he died, he rose again for you that you might be saved. You can't earn that. But what you need to do is work out that salvation just as God works in you. If you're a Christian, you have been saved. Nothing can take that away from you. One day, God will look at you in all your perfection because Jesus has done that for you. But for now, God wants to transform you and wants to change you that you might become like Jesus, humble, obedient, giving of yourself for others. God wants to take rebellious, sinful, 
disobedient people like us and transform us in this crooked generation until we are like Jesus, humble and self-seeking. Until we are the sort of people that other folk should look to, obey even, because we have their interests at heart. We model Jesus to them. It's interesting, this commandment that, that Paul gives them isn't do this or do that. And, and this is really quite important. The, the church's commandment, the, the heart of the gospel, isn't do this or do that. It isn't try harder or, 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 or be more religious or any of those things. It's simply this. Allow God to work in you. Allow him to transform you from the inside out. God works in you. And look what he does. He works in you to transform you that you might, verse 13, your will might be changed, that you might act differently in order to fulfill his good purpose. But notice, first of all, that God's purpose in you is good. He wants what's good for you. He wants you to be the type of person that he made you to be. God is good. But even as we struggle with that, with our own desires and our ambitions, God works in us to change our will, to make us the people that he wants us to be. Now notice it says, work out this salvation. Let God work within you in fear and trembling. Now that's not a fear and trembling that goes around saying, oh gosh, if I don't do the right thing, God will send me to hell or, or, or God will punish me because that's all been taken away. Jesus died for you. That's safe and secure. But rather, the fear and the trembling is, I love God so much. I so much want to be like his son that I don't want to let him down. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to dishonor him. If you've had a, a wonderful relationship with a boss or with a parent or someone in your life who's been in charge of you, who you really admired, you're motivated not by the fact they might give you into trouble. You're motivated by the fact you don't want to let them down, do you? They've done so much for you. They've honored you. They've given themselves for you. They've served you that you, you just don't want to let them down. And that is what this is saying here. So work it out with fear and trembling. Don't take it lightly. It should be important to us. And then Paul goes on to say, verse 14, do it, oh, I've got this in the wrong order. I've not got the verse up there. Verse 14, he says, do it without grumbling or arguing. I, I, I always read this and think of churches. Funny when you hear about grumbling and arguing, you think of churches, isn't it? Because Christians like to grumble, grumble and moan. Um, you know, we moan about the music and we moan about the minister and we moan about the carpets and we moan about the children and we moan about just about everything, don't we? That's what we do. But actually, that's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about something else. It's taking us back to the Old Testament. The Israelites, God saved them just like he saved us. He brought them out of Egypt. He set them free. He took them through the Red Sea. He worked in them a great salvation. He gave them the manna and the bread and the land and all these things. And what did they do? We're told that they grumbled and they argued. And they grumbled at God, really. That was the rebellion within them again, the disobedience of God. And when they grumbled and re rebelled, they, what they were really saying is, Lord, you give me this food and it's no good. 
It's not enough of it. I don't get it on Saturdays. It's not good. Lord, you give me this work to do and it's too hard. You don't really love me. Lord, you've taken us on this, this journey and it, it's too far. God, it's 40 years. It's, it's, it's no use. And they just kept moaning, moaning and moaning for 40 years. Basically saying, God, you are no good. You are no fun. Your ways are not good. You are not this good God that's got our best interests at heart. You're not like that at all. We, we don't like you very much. We want to decide for ourselves which way we'll go and when we'll eat and what we'll do. We don't want your laws. We want Frank Sinatra. We want to do it our way. You see the pattern of obedience, of disobedience? So we aren't to do this with that sort of grumbling heart because of Jesus. Because in Jesus we see that this God who brings us an instruction is the perfect boss who loves us, who serves us, Jesus, who shows us obedience, but more than that, gave us all these things for us. What that means is it transforms the attitude we do it in, because you see, if you think you're serving God in order to get the pay at the end of the day, the reward at the end of the day, or if you think you're serving God because that way life will go fine for you, if you keep all God's rules, then your life will be happier. Then what happens when things get tough and suffering comes is you become bitter and moaning and complaining because God has not done it for you. He's not good at all. But if you grasp the gospel that Jesus died for you, that Jesus has a good purpose in wanting to transform you, then suddenly all that God is asking of you is good. Christians aren't a bunch of people with a moral code. Not because a moral code can't save you. It can't, but that's not the point. The point is that moral codes just make us rebellious and they make us resentful. That's what law does. But Jesus does something else. If you go around many old churches, you will see at the front of them the Ten Commandments. Have you seen churches like that, old ones, where they've got the, the Ten Commandments at the front of the church? Big screens. Have you have folks seen that? You'll notice it in many old Protestant churches. And, and I guess it, they were probably put there in Victorian times or before that, where they really felt, if we put this up, it'll tell all the children how they should behave. You know, you came into church and it reminded you you'd broken that one and that one and that one and you were a sinful person. That's just going to make you miserable, isn't it? But of course, what do we put on the front of more churches than that? We put a cross, don't we? We put a cross on the front of the church because what we're asking folk to do is this. Don't look at the moral code. Look at the beauty of Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Look at that beauty and know the love of this perfect master. And then bow the knee at his feet and call him Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.